0: The Israeli government led by Benjamin Netanyahu was expected to initiate a plan to annex as much as 35 percent of the Palestinian West Bank in the Jordan Valley, formally declaring it a part of Israel. The plan is part of a series of policies put forward in President Trump and his son-in-law Jared Kushner's so-called Deal of the Century. After international criticism and even caution from some members of the US Congress, a delay in the plans has been announced. Nonetheless, the deal of a century is feared to be executed soon. Israel's annexation of the region would put the over 70,000 Palestinians under full Israeli authority, giving the Israeli military control over all, all movement, agriculture, water, and all imports and exports, forcing residents to endure apartheid-like conditions experienced by those living in Gaza. The plan would also cut out a part of the West Bank, allowing Israel to encircle the region militarily and control all Palestinian access to the outside world, similar to how the apartheid state already does with Gaza. Not only does Trump's so-called deal of the century hand de facto control to the Israeli military over all Palestinian movement, it opens up the door to over 100,000 illegal, Jewish-only settlements on indigenous Palestinian land and prevents the 2 million Palestinian refugees who have the legal grounds to return to their land from ever doing so. The United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, declared Israel's annexation plans illegal and disastrous. This is territorial conquest as defined by the United Nations Charter and illegal under international law. Now, despite international opposition, Israel enjoys full support from the United States, the world's only superpower, and plans to complete the annexation before Trump's re-election run in November. Now joining me today to discuss the plan, its consequences, and its implications for the region as a whole are Dr. Ramzi Baroud, Robert Inklesh, and Niko Paled. Dr. Ramzi is an internationally acclaimed Palestinian-American journalist and the author of five books on the region, the latest of which is These Chains Will Be Broken, Palestinian Stories of Struggles and Defiance in Israeli Prisons. Robert is a journalist, writer, and political analyst who has lived in and reported from the occupied Palestinian West Bank. His latest documentary film, Steel of the Century, Steel of the Century, excuse me, Trump's Palestine Israel Catastrophe, premiered in June and can be seen for free on YouTube. Miko is an Israeli-American human rights activist and author of The General Sun, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and also Injustice: The Story of the Holy Land Five Foundation. Foundation 5. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Dr. Ramzi, I'd like to start with you. Something that is often not understood without looking at a map is that if Israel does indeed annex the Jordan Valley, the West Bank will will be completely surrounded by Israel, losing its only land border. Um, As Israel destroyed Palestine's only airport in 2001 and zealously patrols Gaza's maritime boundaries, Palestinian movement will be completely under the control of their occupier. We've seen this before. And I'm wondering, uh, will the West Bank come to resemble Gaza, often described as the world's largest open-air prison? And how will this affect the already limited freedom of movement for Palestinians?
1: Um, Well, first of all, thank you for having us, uh, Manar. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Um, I, I hate to be the the guy with the, who brings the bad news, but um, the West Bank is already under complete Israeli control and all movement and all freedoms uh, are curtailed for Palestinians in the West Bank. And in many, many ways, the West Bank is already a Gaza in a sense because those who are you know have survived the uh, direct impact of the apartheid wall, that is built illegally, mostly on occupied Palestinian land, uh, they still have to deal with the numerous military checkpoints and uh, with the fact that uh, the West Bank is sliced up into various regions, areas A, B, and C, each requiring different type of documentations, different type of um, uh, administrative work that would allow Palestinians to move Within these limited zones and so forth, so so Israel already has discovered. In fact, uh, there are areas in the West Bank called firing zone, and and this is something that I've been, you know, kind of attempting to research in in recent months. These are Palestinians who are completely cut off from anybody and everybody, and they have don't even have um, any sort of of. Um, uh, a community, a surrounding community in which they can communicate with and create, kind of uh, survive within these small bantu stands. We are talking about communities that in order for them to see a doctor, an ambulance would have to acquire permission from the Israeli military to do so. So as far as the freedoms that already exist in the West Bank, um, that that is a done deal. There is no freedom whatsoever. So why is annexation important and and we need to talk about it and
0: how, it well, is how, important. And, how and how will it make it even worse
1: and how it would make it even worse um i think um in in you know i am i am not personally as someone who have you know you know believe that has a, a good command over the history of the of the region and 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 you know familiar with the kind of the apartheid within apartheid that exists in the west bank I am not in terrible shock that this is going to happen, and I I do not believe that it's going to have tremendous impact on the lives of Palestinians on the ground. What it will actually do, it will be the last nail in the coffin of the so-called peace process. Nobody after this, in his right mind, can actually talk about a negotiated settlement or can talk about a two-state solution. It's over. In fact, it's been over for many years what we need to talk about how will it really affect the palestinian farmer in the jordan valley who hasn't been able to reach his land for decades anyway because the vast majority of the jordan valley not only is occupied by israel but it's largely turned either to a closed military zone to a firing zone or to is being used and utilized and exploited by the illegal militant jewish settlers so in 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 many ways the average Muhammad and Abdullah and Fatima of the Jordan Valley are not going to wake up in the morning, you know, the day after annexation and say, my goodness, our life is now, you know, and it has completely changed. It, it really wouldn't make that much change. And just one final thing I'd like to say, Israel annexed, uh, occupied Palestinian East Jerusalem in 1980, and it also occupied uh, annexed, officially annexed, The Golan Heights, the the Syrian Golan Heights in 1981, um, did that change the status of, of Jerusalem under international law? Did that alter the relationship that we have towards Jerusalem or Syrians and Arabs have towards the Golan Heights? It didn't. It only altered something in the mindset of the Israelis. They thought it's over. This is ours for, you know, for eternity. But it did not alter the nature of our struggle and how we perceive, and not just how we as Palestinians, how international law perceive these illegally acquired and illegally occupied territories.
0: And. You know, there's a lot of opposition towards this annexation plan and the deal of the century. While many Arab and European governments have rhetorically opposed the Trump and Netanyahu annexation plan, can we actually expect to see any concrete action um, taken in opposition to the move? Or is their opposition merely symbolic? And this is a follow up question for you, Dr. Ramzi
1: right so that's these are two very important issues that we need to be looking at at the moment and we need to study very very carefully because these are not the same arab nations that have existed say in the 50s and 60s we are talking about uh, and almost a complete paradigm shift that happened after the so-called Arab Spring in the Middle East, where you have governments that uh, are just barely attempting to survive, sovereign countries that turned either to uh, pariah states or turned into, you know, their countries like Libya turned into this state of chaos. The last thing in the mind of Libyans right now is to free Palestine, and I don't blame them, frankly. I appreciate what the Yemenis are doing, that even despite of the starvation and the war and the cholera and all of this they still go out in their millions and protest for palestine but you can't really turn that into anything politically like a political political capital that can be of benefit to the palestinians then you have the normalizing arabs the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, and to a extent the the the, the uh, Omanis, the, the Egyptians, and so forth, and in many ways they are actually on board. I mean, they don't declare it openly, but we know from many documents and and leaks that have been coming out that they are really they do not oppose this. They are because they see this as part of the deal of the century, and they have already not only signed on the so-called deal of the century, they actually celebrated it uh, in the economic forum that they held in Bahrain last year. So they, they actually want this to happen. So forget about what they say in, in their official media. This is just, you know, nonsensical. What really matters is that the practical political positions that they have taken. So Palestine right now, or the Palestinian political decision, is operating with uh, kind of in a vacuum where you don't have this solid, strong Arab support that even when it was strong and solid back in the day, it still was not effective enough to make a change. Now, imagine it's happening now in the age of normalization with Israel. The second factor that you raise is that of the Europeans and the European Union. Now, okay, fine. So the Europeans are taking this position that we are against annexation, but of course there will be no sanctions on Israel, because the European Union, as many of us already know, is already dysfunctional. And if Sweden or Ireland are going to demand sanctions, the others are not going to accept that, especially the Germans and the French. So So what are the Europeans asking for at the moment? They are saying... We are opposed to annexation, but please take us back to the status quo of perpetual occupation. I mean, that can't be a moral or a legal position either. So this is really the biggest challenge that Palestinians are facing, is that the ball is constantly in the field of the Israelis and the Americans. They come up with all these crazy plans. They are trying their very best to undermine every Palestinian effort, to undercut every Palestinian demands, while the Palestinians, on the other hand, don't have any solid and practical support coming from their supposed allies and friends, whether in the Middle East or in Europe.
0: Right. And I think it's very important to look at this through an imperial um, territorial conquest perspective. I mean, if the Arab states Um, are on board, there has to be some sort of economic benefit to them as they work very closely hand in hand with the United States and with the European Union, because I can't imagine if a country like, you know, Yemen or Iran or so-called countries that are in the crosshairs of the United States, like Venezuela or Cuba or even Russia, if they were to behave in the way Israel does, um, you know, sanctions would be slapped on that on those countries immediately. Yet Israel is acting with, you know, with no consequences whatsoever. In fact, it's being applauded in the background and supported in the background um, by these Western powers and these Arab countries who are obviously uh, ruled by um, you know dic- you know very corrupt dictators. And so I, I want to talk about the you know the impetus of you know Israel wanting to occupy this very specific region within the Jordan Valley. And Ramsi, Dr. Ramsey you mentioned that. Um, you know, Israel has taken over a lot of the agricultural land and turned it into military zones. And I know that, um, Robert, you actually in your documentary, um, The Steel of the Century, uh, while you were filming it, you actually traveled to this region and you talk about how Israel is after the water and the resources and the agriculture in this area is because, you know, whenever we look at any conflict in the Middle East, water is like considered gold. It's very valuable considering it's a desert region. All the aquifers are running dry. There's, you know, a lot of people that are um, trying to take, you know, control over water. In fact, a lot of conflicts in the Middle East can be defined um, for a fight for water. And so, Robert, tell me about your experience in this region and um, how this is a war for access to water resources and the agriculture.
2: Well, of course, this is part of it. Um, As Ramzi just uh, outlined, uh, 85% of the Jordan Valley itself, which constitutes 30% of the West Bank, is completely closed to Palestinians. So it's a closed military zone um, and different firing zones that they have. Um, It's defined as different things, but ultimately 85% of it is completely closed. Also, what we have to know is this land in the Jordan Valley is the most fertile land. Um, And so for a future potential Palestinian state, uh, this was to be where the, uh, of course, uh, the agricultural uh, uh, projects were to be. This was uh, supposed to be used for urban centers, uh, for water extraction. But even when it comes to all of these things, um, everything has already been taken. And this is very key. Uh, Ramzi just outlined this, um, that... It really is, I would call it, already an annexation. The only difference uh, on the ground is going to be that it it is illegal, um, in terms of the way that the Israelis frame it, a legal annexation of this land. So they will now acknowledge it legally as theirs, um, which, of course, is in violation of the UN Charter. When we talk specifically about the Jordan Valley um, in that area... There is uh, roughly just over uh, 75,000 people, I believe, Palestinians, that is, that are living there, and around 7,000 to 8,000 settlers. Um, The majority of the Palestinians are situated in uh, Jericho. Uh, which is de facto under Palestinian uh, authority control, however the Israelis can go in whenever they like and do whatever they please. But for those communities outside of that area, which is in Area C of the West Bank, which is under full Israeli control, those communities will either be uprooted uh, or, well, we've already heard from Israel that they won't be given Israeli citizenship. So what will happen with them um, is still, we, we don't really know. Um, in terms of the water as well, this is another key thing. Israel controls all of the water. The Palestinians mm-hmm. don't have the right to dil, uh, dra- uh, dig sorry, um, and drill deep enough to get to any real uh, water for themselves. Um, they don't have the right to do that. And the Palestinian Authority has attempted to do that time and time again, but they can't get the uh, permits to be able to do it. Um, and also, we had to take into consideration that for a long time now, the Jordan, Val- uh, Jordan River sorry, has been diverted. Um, And so they diverted the water uh, supply itself, Um, and so they've dried up many regions. And on top of this, uh, when we talk about water, we have to look at the Gaza Strip where it's extremely important um, because 97% of the water in Gaza is unfit for human uh, consumption at this time. That aquifer there has been completely dried up, and uh, because of the drilling, There's been seawater intrusion, which has an irreversible effect on it um, and means that the people of Gaza don't have access to that. And then we also have to consider that within the Gaza Strip itself, and also there's this in the West Bank with many communities, uh, there's around roughly uh, 400,000 people, I believe, who don't have a direct supply uh, of water, a direct uh, supply line of water. And so in a population of two million, that's huge. And we have to consider this is a population, half of which are children under the age of 18. Um, So it's a huge issue here. And to link it back to the Jordan Valley and this project overall, I would say that an annexation is something which is intended to be permanent. An occupation is something that is supposed to end. And what we have seen from the Israelis, what they have proven time and time again, Um, and this has been happening all uh, during the period uh, since the Oslo Accords were signed in 1993. They have never recognized the Palestinian state on that land. Um, They have never had the intention to properly recognize it. They have continued to build their settlements. And so from everything we can see signaled from the Israeli side and the fact that they deny the Palestinians really their right to exist there um, and they denied the the Palestinians recognition of a Palestinian state, we can say that it has already been an annexation. They own everything, they control everything, they will continue to do that. Um, And so what is happening now is we're just seeing that recognition. It's funny that we talked about the Europeans um, and and their stance on this, that uh, they say that they're against annexation, but they're not against annexation. In fact, they've been behind this the whole time. Um, they've done nothing against Israeli settlement expansion. They've done nothing about the Israeli violations in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Um, and they continue to, uh, of course, uh, put funding into this. And so uh, not only through um, the Israelis, but also fr- uh, funding into the Palestinian Authority as well, in order to try and uh, have a form a blackmail in order to keep the Palestinian Authority quiet. Um, And and doing what they're doing. Um, Now we've seen that the Palestinian Authority has torn up security coordination and uh, the uh, agreements since Oslo. um, And so that's stopping. But up until this time, Israel was operating. It's the first ever uh, cost free occupation because the Palestinian Authority would do all the dirty work for Israel. Israel would get to control all the territory and move the settlers in. And the Palestinian Authority would get money for uh, to essentially do the security coordination in the largest uh, city uh, populated city, city areas like Ramallah, like Khedil, um and like uh, Nablus.
0: I want to talk to Miko about um, the illegal Jewish-only settlements in the West Bank, um, Jordan, Jordan Valley region. Um, Robert, you mentioned there are about ten, maybe you know, up to ten thousand illegal Jewish settlements, and I'm reading that the new plan could open the door for over a hundred thousand illegal Jewish settlements. Um, what's going to happen under this new annexation plan, and where are these settlers coming from, Miko? Uh,
3: well, um, this is really the key issue here. Um, the whole annexation, or as Israel describes it, the uh, uh, Israeli sovereignty, you know, ha- placing Israeli, so- the, all this region under Israeli sovereignty, is about the settlers. Uh, right. In terms of Israeli, the way Israelis see the Jordan River Valley, it's not really considered occupied territory, and the settlements and the settlers there are not considered considered like the settlers in, in Al Khalil or, or some of the other places, you know, it's a different, it's a different, slightly different population. So, what this means is that now for them to expand, for them to build, for them to do all the things they need to do to order to grow and thrive, they will be, this will become a, uh, it'll just become a, a local uh, council issue. Until now, because this is occupied and it's really controlled mostly by the military, this has to go through the Ministry of Defense, it has to go through the prime minister, and so forth. And it's a bigger deal. And it's much harder for them to expand, and much harder for them to grow, and much harder for them to do what they want to do. And so you've got all these areas that they've been dying to take over, and they couldn't because of all the complications. Once Israeli sovereignty has been applied to this area, they become just like Israelis in any other part of the country where they can do whatever, whatever they want, basically. Um, and in terms of the Palestinians, you know, it's true. There, there's no way they're going to—the Israeli officials have already said they're never going to get Israeli citizenship. They, can, they will probably—more it's more, more than likely, they will be herded into some—herded somewhere or another. Uh, and we've seen what happened in Anakab, for example, where Israel took, you know, hundreds of thousands of Bedouins and, and, and stuck them all in one in one area, in one region, denied them water, denies them electricity, denies them rights, basically. And they just sit there while Israel uses all the fertile land. And this is really is what it's about. It's about access to the fertile land. It's about denying Palestinians access to the Jordan River Valley and to the Jordan River, enclosing the Palestinian Authority from all directions so that they don't have access to, to any other, you know, they don't have an international border with anybody else. Uh, But really, it's Netanyahu's internal politics wanting to show the settlers and the settler movement and the right bloc, which is really the most popular, the most, not popular, but the most powerful political uh, group in the Israeli political spectrum, um, that he's their man, that he's their guy. And uh, this will allow them to live freer, to feel like they're just like a part of Israel, that they've been... You know They've been allowed into this club, and whether they live in what they call Judea and Samaria, or whether they live in the Jordan River Valley, or whether they live in Haifa, for example, or anywhere else, or in the Jalil, they are just like all other Israelis. And this is really what it's about. Once Israeli law is um, applied there, once Israeli sovereignty is applied there, their life changes, and uh, their ability to expand and so forth um, it be- becomes much, much easier. So that's really what this is all about.
0: Right. And as an Israeli, you know, you served in the military and you became very outspoken against Zionism. You've seen it firsthand how the Old Testament and religious, you know, religion um, is used to further, um, you know, Israel's goals and to demonize and dehumanize Palestinians and to justify land theft um, and resource theft. Um, Miko. is. Um, Talk to me about Trump's evangelical Christian base who want to usher in the return of Jesus. I mean, how is Trump and Netanyahu, how are they both pandering to these people? And then we'll talk about how he's pandering to um, the settlers.
3: Well, he, uh, you know, he gave a speech uh, at the Christians United for Israel. They had their conference, you know, online recently. And in the speech, he he talks about the uh, Israeli sovereignty issue. He didn't call it annexation. And he talks about how, you know, he mentioned all these places that are mentioned in the Bible where Joseph did this and Abraham did that and so forth. And, uh, and how this is part of Jewish heritage, but it's also part of Christian heritage. And now that Israel will be able to protect these areas so that Christian heritage and Jewish heritage are going to be protected under the, you know, under the, uh, under the, the great protection, the gracious willingness of the state of Israel. This is how he portrays it, and so this is how he describes it. Um, and he's creating this artificial union, of course, between Zionism and, uh, and, and the Christian evangelicals who, who, who try to take the Old Testament and turn it into a history book, and basically say, yes, it says in the Old Testament that Joseph was here and Abraham was there, and here are the places the place of the names of these places and now finally after all of these years uh, Jews are going to be able to protect these places again Israeli sovereignty will uh, will be applied and Christians uh, will be safe again you know I mean that's kind of the way he spoke at you know to 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 uh, to the conference. And that's how they do it. That's how they pander. So to them, this is this is very meaningful. They don't know that Israel treats Christian Palestinians just the way they treat any other Palestinians, with contempt, and that they, you know, when Palestinians are being kicked out or, or, or their homes are being destroyed, Israel doesn't check their religion. As far as Israel is concerned, a Palestinian is a Palestinian. Um, and, that's, and that's how they get it done. That's how he gets it done. And, it, it's, and it's miraculous. It, it seems to work.
0: Right, and obviously with so many different conflicts happening around the world, historically speaking, religion um, has been used many times throughout history to uh, pander, you know, millions of people to support a political cause and drive up their emotions um, to support things that can many times turn out to be extremely inhumane. But in the end, it's a government that's always seeking to steal more land, extract more resources, and um, to profit, uh, Robert, in your latest documentary film, Steel of the Century, you mentioned that Jared Kushner, one of the key people behind the so-called uh, Trump peace plan, is heavily financially invested in the illegal settlement settlements. Um, can you expand upon that for us? How is he, how is he uh, profiting off of this?
2: So basically what we know is through uh, the foundation connected to uh, the Kushner family, that there's been at least a hundred thousand U.S. dollars donated to uh, the settlement uh, called Beit El. And Beit El is uh, basically right at the side of Ramallah. It's sort of, you know, penetrating into the city of Ramallah itself. Um, And so uh, this specifically, you know, is a hotspot for demonstrations where demonstrators will get shot. In my documentary, I show that there was the targeting with a tear gas canister uh, to his bulletproof vest a uh a member of the press a palestinian member of the press and um th- this issue of settlements is that it goes beyond jared kushner and his investments right. um, it's also everyone else involved in this uh so-called uh peace deal um and so all of them believe that this uh, the settlements are not illegal um and if this goes contrary to you know the opinion uh, at, at, of the international community um, and it's only really Israel and the United States who are on one side with this, were saying that it's not even really disputed territory. This is Israeli territory. Um, it's not occupied territory. Um, and following along this uh, sort of hardline uh, right-wing position that they have, that it's all their land. Um, and so when you have somebody in a position like this as well, Jared Kushner himself is not really uh, smart enough to come up with. Uh, anything tangible in the region. So I I believe that it's not just him who's drafted it himself. Uh, I believe that there's a number of different players behind this. And we know that the plan itself um, has been put forth uh, by the likes of Netanyahu before. And this sort of thing's been uh, spoken about many times. But yeah, the, the issue of settlements is that Um, If you're not even going to recognize them as illegal, what they are under international law, what the ICJ recognizes them as, what the United Nations recognizes them as, what Amnesty International and and Human Rights Watch, which are the two leading human rights organizations uh, in the world, uh, recognize them as, then how can you possibly be calling for uh, some sort of a two-state solution or any sort of solution to the conflict? This is just basic elementary uh, stuff. And, and when it comes to this, of course, the settlements are tied into what's known as the final status issues. They were originally five, they were then, we would then uh, sort of isolated down to four. Um, and uh, they include uh, East Jerusalem, the status of Jerusalem, the refugee problem, the settlements, and borders. And the water was the fifth, uh, which was included into borders. Um, and when it came down to the ICJ's decision, uh, the International Court of Justice, which is the highest. Uh, a court in, in the world, um, 14 out of 15 judges uh, ruled that on all of these issues, other than they didn't focus on the refugees, all of these issues, these final status issues, were uncontroversially uh, on the side of the Palestinian argument. The settlements are illegal. Uh, the, the wall itself is illegal. Uh, Israel and the way that it's uh, trying to establish its borders is illegal. Um, and of course, uh, the status of East Jerusalem is to be for the Palestinians. These are uncontroversial questions, but these are questions that when it comes to the United States, they make them seem like they're so untouchable that they have to be reserved to the final, uh, you know, the final, uh, status, uh, and the final, uh, part of some sort of police, uh, um, peace solution, um, when this is just not the case.
0: And Ram- Dr. Ramsey, um, can you talk to me a little bit about, uh, more more into the profit category of how this annexation plan and this deal of the century will fuel will continue to fuel the military industrial complex
1: well i think it's it's uh, important that we kind of m- move away from you know kind of associating all of this annexation and this whole you know political bonanza that's happening uh, in Israel to the larger subject of the American so-called vision for the Middle East. And this is something that kind of really goes back to the um, the W. Bush administration and even, and even before that. You know, this whole idea that we need to come up with something that is a greater vision for the Middle East where we um, tailor the Middle East to fit our own agenda, our own imperialist agenda. Of course, they won't term it that way, but that's the truth of it. And how Israel can can be part of that vision, you see. Yeah. Um, the you know uh, we remember Richard Pearl, the 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 notorious uh, what 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 was the name that uh, they used for him, the Prince of Darkness, I believe. Um, remember, the, the he came up with this vision that he gave to Netanyahu at the time, we we're talking about mid-late uh, 90s, where he envisioned uh, an American intervention in the Middle East where Damascus rolling back Damascus, uh, overthrowing the Saddam Hussein regime in Iraq and restructuring the Middle East to fit an American vision, an American military vision. And that's where the massive amount of profits comes in. And during this time, Israel also will be allowed, will be given this free range to do whatever it pleases to do to Palestinians in Lebanon and so forth.
0: Kind of sounds like what's happened,
1: right? (laughs) That's precisely what happened. And and sadly, I, I feel like this should be really kind of this should be more well known. I mean, at the time it was well known, and then it kind of disappeared for a while. And I think we—we we, this is the true discourse from through you know from all of which this is happening now. This did, did not stop with the Iraq invasion in two thousand three. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it carried on. It carried on to the um, remember Condoleezza Rice's uh, uh, you know the um, the greater or the great Middle East vision where she tried to uh, basically, again, find some sort of an amalgamation between American and Israeli interests within Palestine and outside of Palestine, um, thanks to the resistance in Lebanon 2006. You know, the the idea was pushed back uh, uh, for years, and, and the Americans learned that this is not just so simple as coming to impose your political and military agenda on people. No, there is still something called popular resistance. There are still politically conscientious and conscious Arab people who will fight back, and they did fight back. And to a certain degree, they defeated all of these stratagem. And then we go to the Arab Spring where uh, so-called Arab Spring, it's its its far more complicated than just, you know, reducing it to a single term that was not even coined by an Arab. Mind you, it was coined by the Neocons back in the day when they were pushing for this new Middle East agenda that was championed by W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice and so forth. Now, we, you know, Trump comes back in, but this time he does not come with, uh, um, he has his own agenda. It's not, let's not give Trump too much credit, you guys. Uh, Trump doesn't have any political vision of any kind. This is something that is championed largely by uh, Israel's first press in the in the ad- American administration, the likes of David Friedman, Jason uh, Greenblatt, if we remember him, uh, Jared Kushner, and others. And this time, this is not about any negotiated anything. This is about imposing an American so-called vision on the rest of the Middle East. The Palestinians are not even involved in this negotiated process. This is something that will take place between the Americans and the Israelis with the help of their, you know, uh, uh, allies in the region, in in the Arab Gulf and so forth the palestinians are not even to be consulted i mean we are going back to the dates uh, of the of the british mandate over palestine palestinians don't even exist they are not even part of this discussion and indeed when they went absolutely
0: absolutely
1: completely and i think this is the real devastation here is that after all of these years of the palestinians reinserting themselves as a major and important player in their own fate as should should have always been the case starting with the late 1960s with yasser arafat taking charge of the plo pushing a nationalist palestinian agenda all the way until madrid in 1990 and 1991, when the Palestinians tried to have their own delegation to represent themselves, and the Israelis said, no, who are you? We don't even recognize you. You are not even a people. You need to go through the Jordanians. And the Jordanians said, no. And finally, the Palestinians managed to represent and speak for themselves. So this was quite an, an, an accomplishment, considering everything. And now Trump, Kushner, Friedman, Greenblatt, and all the rest, are pushing us completely out Palestinians don't matter they are not even part of the conversation anymore and this is really where it becomes very dangerous the Americans come with their Middle East peace plan a few months ago so-called peace plan the so-called deal of the century and the Israelis are now wanting to turn this plan into they want to start taking the first moves Um, and now they are testing it with this idea of annexations, hoping that this is going to become the new status quo, the new reality. The Arabs will have to live with it the same way they lived with so much more in the past, and the Palestinians eventually become irrelevant, marginal, and they are not part of the conversation anymore. So what worries me a great deal about annexation is not annexation itself because as i said earlier israel has this very bizarre definition of what's legal and what's illegal when they talk about illegal settlements in israel they are referring to settlements that have or uh, or or outposts that have been established without the uh uh, um, the support of the israeli government and the backing of the military when we talk about illegal settlements Um, The international community and international law refers to any, any outpost, any settlements, no matter how big or small, that was built on occupied land, land that was occupied after June 1967. So when Israel says annexations or no annexations, Israel has its own definition of what's legal and what's not legal. And we are not beholden to this definition, and we are not under no moral or legal, you know, uh, um, uh, obligations to accept it but what worries me so much is will this becomes a new status quo in which we find the palestinians given one out of two choices the likes of mahmoud abbas one out of two choices it's either you maintain a certain certain leverage and, and 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 few perks and some money and agree to tag along but not as the center and the core of this political discourse you are just one party out of many or we are going to try to find a way to push the Palestinians completely out of, of the political paradigm and sort out this issue directly with the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Egyptians and, of course, the Israelis and everyone else. And, and I think this is really the the heart Of the matter at this moment
0: It really is I mean Palestinians are completely excluded They're silenced They're dehumanized They're as if they don't even exist I mean that's how they're treated And when they're not brought to the negotiation table And they're basically given ultimatums Um, You know, it's nothing is going to work in their favor. Yet Palestinian resistance is so strong. You know, when I see images of Palestinian resistance, I see images of, you know, young people who are so passionate, who are so loud and outspoken and especially around the world and even in Gaza with their, you know, with their weekly marches. And just a couple of days ago, um, there was a day of rage. Um, with over 100,000 Palestinians who marched against the annexation plan. And so people are clearly, Palestinians especially, are not happy with this plan. They're willing to stand up and fight for it. But then we have the Palestinian Authority standing in the way. And I think that they're used so often, especially within corporate media and mainstream media and Western media, Um, as like a weapon against Palestinians, because like you said, Dr. Ramzi, um, we have people like Mahmoud Abbas, who will take the bait, you know, and he'll he'll do whatever um, Israel says, but he doesn't actually represent Palestinians. Um, You know, Miko, can you tell me about because, you know, you Miko, you you've been on the ground, you constantly go back and forth to Palestine, you As an Israeli peace activist, you join Palestinian um, peace movements and protests and you're there on the ground um, resisting Israeli occupation. Talk to me about what Palestinians need to do to resist their own Palestinian authority and if it if it is actually possible for them to rule their own.
3: Well, I think Palestinians uh, are are doing every everything they can do, and I think they do they're doing everything they should do. It's just that we need to step up. Um, the situation in which Palestinians exist, this this, uh, this fragmentation that Israel created, uh, makes it very difficult to join forces. For example, if Palestinians in the Nakba want to join forces with Palestinians in Gaza, which is a natural alliance because so many of the people, the refugees in Gaza, are from the Nakba. They can't do it because there's no way for them to, to get together, you know. Uh, if somebody even from Al-Khalil wants to come to the Neqab, you know, these are alliances that would have been completely natural and normal, but they cannot happen because of the restrictions that Israel has placed. And for somebody to travel out of Al-Khalil to go to the Nekab, they are risking, you know, years of jail. So it's they made it very very complicated for Palestinians. I think to do more than they're already doing. Um, I think that what is needed here is for uh, is for the people like ourselves and others that are out there listening. Uh, it's it's a, it's really incumbent upon us to change this paradigm, to change the way things are happening. I mean. You know, the world wakes up every so often when Israel does something and, and you know, there's condemnation and there's, you know, security council resolutions, but then everybody goes back to sleep and nothing happens. And I, I said this the other day, one hopes that maybe this is kind of the George Floyd moment where, you know, the entire world saw a black man die, you know, have the life sucked out of him over eight minutes and 46 seconds and something happened. You know what I mean? Everybody's, you know, people change. things are change. And one would hope that perhaps this annexation, even though, like was said already before me here, you know, this is really one more step in a long line of annexations and land theft and and really a continuation of, of, of genocidal policies that have been going on for more than seven decades now. Um, and, and perhaps this is something that's going to wake uh, people of conscience up and, and really demand sanctions, really demand taking the boycott to a whole new level, uh, really demand that Israeli uh, diplomats be kicked out of the of, of capitals around the world and sent home. There has to be a, a, a stepping up of the resistance. There have to be real sanctions. Israelis have to know that they cannot participate in the Olympics. They cannot send a team to the World Cup. They cannot sa- participate any longer in, in, in sporting events and cultural events. And that can- Events. This has to be stepped up to a point where they realize they have gone too far. And I, I want to. I don't have to remind anybody on this panel, but I, but, but, but I think it's important to emphasize. You know, we're not talking about a legal entity doing something illegal. We're talking about an illegal project that has been that has taken over Palestine for over seven decades. Has been sucking the life killing people, dispossessing, stealing land, changing names, erasing history, you know, a very, very thorough and brutal process over seven decades. And this is one more step in a long line of, of actions that have been taken by this entity, which is, of course, the state of Israel. So one would hope that this this annexation, this uh, applying, applying of, of Israeli sovereignty on this, you know, which is one third of the of the West Bank, it is not a small matter, this is not a small Piece of land, uh, and it is very significant. Uh, And perhaps this will be that moment where people wake up and say, okay, that's it. We are done. We must have sanctions from this point on. Israel must see, there must be consequences. And if that happens, I believe, I'll just say this that if that happens, it starts the ball rolling. Then people realize there is no legitimacy to Israel at all. There are no legal Israeli settlements because Tel Aviv is not a legal settlement either. And neither are the, the, the point, you yeah. know, Jerusalem and so forth. None of them are legal. None of them have any 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 uh, legal holding. They're all illegal, it's all stealth of land, and there are five and a half million refugees out there that have a right to return to their homes and be compensated and paid reparations. And that has to happen as well. So once we get the ball rolling, I think then we'll have a snowball effect. Uh, But we have to get started. We have to really push forward hard. And again, hopefully this will be that moment where things where things do change.
0: And um, Robert, you've obviously been on the ground um, lately in Palestine. What is the vibe that you are getting in terms of um, from Palestinians about this whole annexation plan and the vibe and the mood that they have towards the palestinian authority
2: um well i'll address the first part of that question um when i went back to palestine earlier this year um i felt two things one uh desperation um and also a sense of uh, unity in many places uh building within people but also a sense of really um almost defeat on many fronts, um, because of the fact that this has all rolled through and there's been no response. And part of this, I believe, and what I can see, um, which played into this, is the fact that when the people of the Gaza Strip, starting from March 30th, 2018, went out to demonstrate in the Great Return March, not even that created any real effect when it came to the international community acting. There was nothing. Um, And the mainstream media uh, in the West, whether it be BBC or to, you know, American Fox News, all painted it as clashes. Not a single Israeli soldier was uh, uh, seriously injured or killed beyond, you know, scratches. And around 330 Palestinians all up, if you consider all the demonstrations as part of it, uh, were killed by the Israelis and 40,000 plus injured. Um, Nothing, nothing changed. And so there was, you know... A lot of people had sort of lost hope, and I, I won't name the individual, but I spoke to a friend of mine there who's long time been involved in nonviolent resistance, and he told me I don't believe in the demonstrations anymore. I believe in armed resistance, um, only, and that comes out of a, a basically a situation of absolute desperation, because you know when you've been protesting peacefully, nonviolently for so long, um, and you've gotten nothing tangible then you're in a situation where you're thinking, well, if my back is against the wall, then it's only through armed resistance that we can do anything. Um, And it's a sad state of affairs that people feel that, you know, uh, nonviolence has largely not had the effect that they wanted it to. In some areas, there's been some small wins. Um, However, overall, there's not been. Um, To address the part about the Palestinian Authority, um, well, um, of course, you'd have to ask Palestinians specifically how they feel. Um, about the Palestinian Authority, but what I can say about the Palestinian Authority in of itself is that it was a creation of Israel. Israel saw that after the beginning of the first Intifada in 1987, that it had a real problem on its hands. And the problem on its hands was that this uprising had meant that the Israelis had to deploy roughly, at one point it was around 300,000 Israeli troops into the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And so when they had to do that, Not only was it economically a burden on them, not only was it PR, uh, a PR burden, but they felt like, you know, it was keeping them open to outside attacks and and keeping them less focused on other projects they had going on uh, to take more land and and, uh, attack other countries. And so they approached uh, Yasser Arafat. um, And when they approached Yasser Arafat, they approached him when he was in a very weak position. We had to understand that he was ran out of Lebanon by this time. Um, and that uh, the guerrilla attacks weren't once uh, what they once were at this moment. We're going a little bit into history, but it's very important. And so eventually when they signed uh, the Oslo Accords, they'd signed the Oslo Accords with a party that was willing to make these sort of concessions. Um, who was in a weak sort of a position because their aim was to create a Palestinian authority inside of these territories to police that domestic situation which was going on there and to quell the uprisings. And so you will see the way that uh, the West Bank has been set up. um, And of course, Gaza is not under uh, internal occupation. It's an external occupation now with a siege. Um, But in the West Bank until this day, we see that the Palestinian Authority is in area in area A and then obviously area B as well that it has, uh, which is not the majority of the West Bank. Area C is uh, 60% and Israel controls it all completely um, under you know military rule. Um, but in those areas where the Palestinian Authority is, the, these are the major city centres. So Ramallah, Al-Khalil, Nablus, etc. And so these people are you know, subject to the Palestinian Authority, arresting them, of course, policing the situation. And then what happened is, of course, the likes of the European Union, the United States, even Japan would come in and fund the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority would then collaborate, of course, with the Israelis in terms of what they call security coordination. And so this Palestinian Authority, this whole time since Oslo, um, after the signing of Oslo and, and the Palestinian Authority being set up has worked for the Israelis right. to basically create a situation where if the Palestinians want to come out and Palestinians have told me this uh, themselves, you know, um, that if you want to come out and throw stones at anyone, you're not going to want to throw stones at a Palestinian Authority policeman who is, you know, just from a village who's taking a, a, a pay slip, who wants to make some money for himself. Um, the same way that you're going to rise up against the Israeli occupation forces. So the Palestinian Authority are professionally trained torturers by uh, by Jordan um, and uh, their their forces. Um, I'm not saying that all of these uh, Palestinian Authority forces are bad by uh, uh, by any standard. Not all of them are. There's a lot of good people who sign up and and who are not uh, bad people at all. Um, but What they do on the ground is and what they've continued to do is uphold Israeli occupation and make it cost free and stop that PR thing that Israel had. It still has the PR problem and make it so that Israel doesn't have to be so heavily deployed into these major population areas. And so that's why Israel approached them. And that's why Israel set this up. It was never intended to create a Palestinian state. That's not what Oslo was about. That was not what creating the Palestinian Authority, which is supposed to be an interim government for a future potential Palestinian state. It wasn't about that. It was about expanding the land more. They they seized uh, the West Bank, Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem, uh, the Syrian Jolan, the Sinai Peninsula in uh, 1967, and they wanted to hold on to much of this land. Of course, they annexed uh, in 1980 and 1981 East Jerusalem and uh, the Jolan. Um, and so... It's an ongoing process. How can we take as much land as possible? How can we have to pay as little money as possible? How can we be seen as sort of quasi acceptable by the international community at times and get away with this stuff? Um, and so we're going to continue to see that, I believe, with the occupation, uh, with the annexation, which is coming. Um, I I believe that what they will attempt to do is they will take the major settlement blocks because they play with numbers, they will say this is 5% of the West Bank when it's really not, Um, you know, behind the wall alone, um, that's already taking about 12% of the West Bank alone, just the areas behind the wall where a lot of the settlements and settlers are located. Um, They will take these settlement blocks um, and then Perhaps later they might take the Jordan Valley as well, but Netanyahu is sort of sl- on a slow burner there. And you'll see that the, the way that they'll pan this out is as slow as possible. Even if they have to have a conflict with Gaza in between, they will do that. And, mm-hmm. and this is the scary aspect. It's a slow burning process. They can't just do it the way they did it in 1948 um, and in 1967 uh because it's not that sort of world it's a slow process of taking all the land because they believe everything's theirs it's it's it, there's no palestinian land there's no palestinian people there you know they don't have legitimate rights they're not legitimate people of the land um there's sort of these nuisances and that's what they view it as
0: and something that i find to be really interesting about you know the whole concept of you know a one-state solution or a two-state solution and dr ramsey you kind of touched on this at the very beginning is the role that Saudi Arabia has played um, from the beginning of this conflict to now, how um, this is something that I find really interesting and it really bothers me. Just like Israel uses religion to prop up the settlements and um, prop up support, Saudi Arabia now that it's, you know, because Saudi Arabia is now Israel's like BFF in the Middle East, um, Saudi Arabia is using its um, fatwa power, right? Its fatwa power with its sheikhs (laughs) to... um, to start releasing fatwas that state that Palestinians should not resist their occupier anymore. And this is such, you know, it's incredibly disturbing how it's kind of um, gotten to that point. And so how is Saudi Arabia, and Dr. Ramzi, this question is for you, how is Saudi Arabia religiously and politically playing a role and using their arm as being, you know, the occupiers of Mecca right now um, in pushing for, you know, for the expansion of the Israeli state?
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm going to expand beyond Saudi Arabia Please um, do, yes. a little bit here. Um, you know, the Saudis are using whatever tools um, and whatever legitimacy or lack thereof, you know, that they have uh, as, a, uh, you know, a center of, um, you know, Islam and, and uh, where the holy shrines are there. And they, they, they would use everything in their power in order for them to exploit this spiritual connection that Muslims have. Uh, towards uh, Mecca and towards the um, the Holy Land in general, uh, to their benefit politically. But uh, frankly, every Arab regime have done the same thing, and we are not talking about uh, the current regimes, you know, the Sisi's and and, and others. We are talking about, uh, um, you know, um, a political discourse uh, that goes back decades, where Palestine has always featured... Uh, in, you know, in a center uh, space within all Arab and Muslim discourses, mind you, yet there has been very little um, kind of yielding coming out of the centrality of Palestine. Every king, every prince, every president, so-called, every government, every political elites, you know, they would never miss not talking about Palestine. And, And it would give you the impression That the Bashir of Sudan or Gaddafi of Libya or the uh, Abdullah of Jordan or the other Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, they've always, you know, their main motive in everything they do, they do it for Palestine, for Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, for Al-Aqsa Mosque, for liberating the Palestinian people. And you would think, my goodness, if we translated all of these hours of fiery speeches into actual tangible strategy, I'm sure that our situation would have been slightly better than what it is right now. And just another thing I want to talk about, this sham solidarity. If if you say listen we are so you know so intensely pro palestine but we can't do anything because the forces that are obstructing our love for palestine and our, our desire to bring about freedom for the palestinians are much larger than all of us these neo colonialist regimes in europe and you know the entire west america israel and so forth okay but why are palestinians mistreated in most of the arab countries Right. Why are they mistreated in Lebanon the way they are? The, the look at you know I've recently been to South Lebanon and I really I was so heartbroken when I saw all these Palestinian refugee camps, people treated like animals, being you know corralled behind these places. People cannot live a normal life. They cannot work you know sixty-five jobs and more. They can't. They can't build. They can't. They can't have a normal, a sense of normality in their lives. The same applies to various Palestinian communities throughout the Middle East. If you are in so much so much in love with Palestine why are you mistreating the Palestinian people in your own countries So this is this is phony solidarity It's always been that way and it will always be this way until we actually see democratic governments. I think there is no doubt in my mind and this is not just an instinct that I have if you look at every poll, polling Arab public opinions. What is the most important issue you have? It's always Palestine. Um, There was a recent poll, I think it was last year, even in Saudi Arabia, 87% or so of Saudis saying, you know, agreeing 100% regarding the rights of the Palestinian people. But can they actually bring about or translate this solidarity to anything tangible when they have governments that are undemocratic, oppressive, uh, and dictatorial. Of course, they can't. So, in some in some way, I feel that the Arabs are also occupied by these post-colonial regimes, by these corrupt regimes that have been giving the the you know their mandates from the very colonial regimes that occupied the Middle East for hundreds of years. Um, so I think it goes beyond Palestine at this point to the larger Arab world. I feel our fate is connected. I feel like the moment that Egyptians are free, um, then, then the Palestinians will start, you know, acquiring real, meaningful and tangible solidarity. And the same applies to every single Arab country, especially to the countries that are immediately within, you know, the surroundings of Palestine geographically.
0: Absolutely. And it is, you know, all of everything that we've talked about is stemming from neo-colonialism. Colonialism Colonialism has not died. We are living (laughs) in modern day era of colonialism. Um, Miko, you concluded in your most recent Mint Press News uh, article by stating that only isolation, boycotts, sanctions and divestment have the ability to stop the annexation and to save Palestine. Could you explain this? And then also tell us about what your assessment is on the current BDS movement.
3: Well, we know that the colonial powers don't just give up their privilege and their power because they wake up one morning feeling good. Um, the only way to get them to do this is to force them to do this. And the only way to force uh, a power like Israel is through sanctions. Um, all the nations in the world, all the Security Council resolutions on the world, all the protests in the world, all the articles and the books that we all write, mean absolutely nothing, have absolutely no effect on Israel directly. They do have effect on in other ways, but not on that directly. Um, And I think the the, only—what must be done immediately is a serious, serious effort to impose sanctions on the state of Israel, absolute sanctions. The only thing that will stop Israel is to bring it to its knees. It's like in South Africa. You know, they didn't one day decide to undo—stop apartheid because they felt good. They were on their knees. And, um, and that's the only, I think that's that's the main tool that we have in our toolbox. That's what we need to do. We need to push. We need to demand that elected officials um, work on this. We need to demand that all officials across the board, governmental, non-governmental agencies, uh, get on board with sanctions, get on board with boycotting Israel. Israel must be isolated. This is the only way to get it to stop. This annexation is only one, not small, significant, but only one part of a much larger project that has been going on for seven decades. I said this earlier, and I think it's important to put this in, you know, to remember this. It's not a normal legal state that is not doing something wrong and it needs to be corrected or condemned. This is a process of destroying Palestine that has been part or, or the, the major part, the major objective of the state of Israel and the Zionist movement going back, uh, you know, the, the, the best part of the last hundred years. And this is one more part of that bigger project, and we need to see it in that context. They must be delegitimized. It must be sanctioned. There must be sanctions against the state of Israel. Israelis should not be allowed to participate in any cultural, sporting, academic event, political gatherings, nothing at all. I know this sounds absurd right now, especially when we see, you know, all, uh, heads of state and, you know, lining up to, to greet Netanyahu and including, you know, the Gulf states and, and, and then the love affair with Saudi Arabia and all of this. But we must do this. This must be the thing that we work on, I think, We must demand that sanctions take place, um, or else nothing's going to stop. There's no reason for Israel to stop doing this. They might delay. They might not announce. We know that on the ground, actually, Palestinians on the ground in the Jordan River Valley are already seeing the results of this. We already know that settlers are moving in and taking over large tracts of land already that Palestinians are being, uh, being displaced already, that they know there's a new sheriff in town, that it's no longer the PA that was the authority. Now it's the State of Israel, the authority. And now it's Israeli, you know what I mean? And in terms of Israeli thinking, that's it. It's been done. You know, it, this is a part of, this is now an officially sovereign part of the state of Israel, so the settlers there can feel much better about themselves, which, like I said, is a big part of why they're doing this. So sanctions is all we've got, and boycott, divestment, and sanctions is the, I believe, the the, the biggest gift that we received from Palestinian civil society, and we need to utilize it, and we need to push for it, and we need to explain it, and we need to demand it in every possible way. Every elected official needs to know that this is what is required right now. And if we do that, then we stand a chance. And I think I'm afraid that if we don't do that, you know, Ramzi talked about Al-Aqsa and how all the Arab and Muslim leaders talks about their love for Al-Aqsa and so forth. Well, if we don't act now, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind. And there really shouldn't be any doubt in anybody's mind because Israeli officials have been saying this. And even the American ambassador at Tel Aviv Al-Aqsa had his picture next, taken in, yeah. front, of, in yeah. front of the Holy Sanctuary without Al-Aqsa there. You know what I mean? This is their plan. This larger, greater Jerusalem that starts in Ramallah and ends in Bethlehem and has Al Aqsa without Al Aqsa, it has the holy sanctuary without the Golden Dome, but this, you know, strange building that they want to build there, which they were going to call a temple. You know, they will not stop until they are forced to stop. And once Al Aqsa and the and, and the dome, and, and the golden dome are gone, they're gone. There's not gonna be a reversal, you know what I mean? And if something doesn't happen that is that is absolutely um, you know, out of our comfort zone, and 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 mm-hmm. earth shattering. They will never stop.
0: Right, and I think that's why the boycott, sanctions, and divestment movement has been attacked and targeted by legislation here in the United States of to make it illegal. to of, of to course, of course, you're, of you're course. There's a problem right.
3: here. Right,
0: they see it as a huge, um, you know, problem
3: it's for Israel. A huge it's so threat, powerful. of course. Exactly, yeah. and exactly. It has the potential, it has enormous enormous potential. Because once the legitimacy is cracked, once people realize that this legitimacy that is given to the state of Israel is not real, then it's a it's a, it's a, it's a snowball effect and it's going to be very I think it's going to be a very good snowball effect for people who care for justice. Right,
0: and for human rights absolutely. Yeah. Well, Miko, Ramzi, Dr. Rumsey and Robert, thank you all, gentlemen, for joining me today. I learned so much from all of you, and I hope that our listeners did as well. Thank you so much.
3: Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Our.
1: Thank you, everyone. Of course. Bye-bye. So
0: this program thank is you so 100% much. listener supported. You can join the hundreds of financial sponsors who make this show possible by becoming a mem- member on our Patreon page. We'll see you all next week.